Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MilkStreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're talking with Chef Jamie Oliver about the value of hard work, his unusual quarantine hobby, and also the biggest threat to public health. 
A big slice of cake is one of the most honest things in the food industry right now. Like a big slice of cake has never pretended to be something it's not. But at the same time, if I take you down your typical supermarket, I can go, dude, look at these pasta sauces. Like there's no need for them to have all that sugar in a simple sauce. Also coming up, a chocolate hazelnut cream cake makes us rethink cake baking techniques. And Dan Pashman and I go head to head on s'mores. But first, my interview with Nick Hall about his quest for the most unusual potato chip flavors. Nick, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. Uh, Chicken and waffles, grilled cheese and ketchup, cappuccino, blueberry, whiskey and haggis. What are these flavors? I think that really is the most interesting question is what are these flavors? Because when I think about novelty potato chip flavors, it's not just that they're this discrete thing, a potato chip that tastes like a crispy taco. It's rather the idea that we're trying to grab this big thing and make it very small so that when I reach into this foil bag and pull out a little round disc of potato, I don't just get a snack. I get my entire life history with that food, all of the joys, all of the experiences, all of the times I've eaten it. And really capturing that big of a thing and that small of a package to me is the magic of novelty potato chips. A hundred years ago, they weren't selling whiskey and haggis potato chips. <laughs> How did this whole world of flavoring, synthetic chemicals, oil, spices, etc., how did this get started? Was there technology breakthroughs that made this possible? Yeah, you know, uh, according to Nadi Berenstein writing for The Atlantic, MSG was kind of the grandfather of novelty potato chip flavors. And then uh, gas chromatography and gas spectroscopy in the 50s and 60s exploded uh, the entire idea. They started isolating uh, chemical components like pyrazines, which are really interesting because they grab just a ridiculously wide variety of flavors. You can get vegetal notes from them, nutty flavors, smoky flavors. They even make potato chips taste more like potatoes. So they're using these chemical derivatives to enhance flavors in a host of ways. Let's talk about some of the flavors used a lot. Um, how do they come up with vinegar? Is that a whole bunch of different chemicals? Is there something specific about doing vinegar? Do they actually use you know, some sort of vinegar that's been concentrated? Some flavors lean more on natural substances rather than derived substances. And, and from what I understand, vinegar is one of those flavors that's relatively easy to deploy as an actual flavor on its own. And that varies from component to component. So you might find a cheese powder that involves cheese, but also involves chemical enhancers to make the flavor pop more. Diacetyl, I know that's part of butter flavoring. One source of diacetyl is like in the natural gas industry or something. You know, it's found in paint thinners. and I mean, it's, it's like a petroleum byproduct of some kind. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's true. My dad used to joke about how all flavors are just chemically introduced to foods from factories off the New Jersey Turnpike. And there's definitely some truth to that. Now, what about people who are listening to this going like, well, why would I want to eat anything that's full of chemicals? And the flip side of that is, you know, everything's chemicals, right? I mean, right. a natural vanilla has chemicals in it. I think it's kind of a semantic argument. There's no flavor you experience that's not chemically derived in some sense, which is how they get to the point of being able to make these artificial and synthetic chemicals for flavorings in the first place is by analysis of the actual organic compounds and molecules. So let's take one of the flavors you're very happy with, crispy taco flavor. You say it does everything a novelty potato chip flavor should do. You're, a, you're, a, <laughs> you're on the bandwagon. Could you just describe what goes into that? It's a combination of things. It's both the actual sensory recall, but also capturing that sort of nostalgic experience and the personal history with the food. And the crispy taco flavor in particular does both of those things extremely well. It's this almost school cafeteria Taco Tuesday, Middle America sort of taco flavor. And what I found almost magical about that flavor was the manner in which the flavors came across in an experiential way. So the first flavor you get is that sort of stale corn flavor, the crispy uh, hard shell that's been sitting in plastic in the grocery store before <laughs> being reheated in the oven. Then this savory beefiness, but not really beef. It's sort of a melange of spice 
and fat. Then you get a little richness from cheese. And then right at the very end, almost as more of an aroma than a flavor, you get this oxidized, shredded iceberg lettuce that's been sitting in a bag for a while. And the specificity of that flavor when it came across was like, oh, wow, yeah, that is every single crispy taco I ate in elementary school cafeterias in the 80s and 90s to a T. You're sort of saying that it doesn't have to taste good. It just has to taste familiar. You're ringing emotional memory resonators here. I think it's both of those things at once. If, if it just tasted bad, that wouldn't quite do it. Definitely, it's it's queuing up those memories and attaching that flavor experience to something that is personal to you, but also somehow in a way universal. I assume the different places in the country and the world, uh, you know, someone likes shrimp flavor and someone likes beef flavor. I assume they're regional preferences. So when they design these things, they have to be careful to target different demographics. Absolutely. You also see in Asia in particular, a lot of sweeter concepts. Lay's just released in China, for example, a milk tea flavored potato chip. You know, one thing I've noticed is now, of course, in Milk Street, we look around the world for new ingredients to us. But something like gochujang, which is not new at all in South Korea, uh, you see gochujang potato chips. Is that also a trend that ingredients that are very popular in other countries are getting put into the bag here in the United States? Yeah, Absolutely. I think we're definitely leaning more in a direction where we are embracing that broader concept of global cuisines, even in potato chips. One of the ones you mentioned for chips are mint. Like, yeah. who wants mint potato chips? I'm sorry, that I don't, or blueberry for that matter. I just don't get that. For me, anything fruity, sweet, or desserty seems like an odd mix. Mint in particular, yeah, that one, that's not going to do it for me personally. Why did you get interested in this in the first place? Were you, <laughs> were you somebody who was out buying wasabi ginger chips or you just happened to notice the trend and wanted to dig deep? I happened to notice the trend. And to be honest, the first bag that I really kind of chased was the biscuits and gravy flavor. Biscuits and gravy happens to be one of my favorite foods on the planet. I think it's a near perfect food. And I wanted to experience it in chip form. And from there, it kind of steamrolled. I, you know, I, I found it interesting conceptually, sort of the high-low concept at play. I think it's not just flavor chemists in laboratories making potato chips that are doing this sort of bait-and-switch, this illusory thing with food, but it's been a part of high-end gastronomy for a long time where world-renowned chefs are playing with flavor and playing with the concept of expectation and reality and taking one thing and making it into another in ways that shock and delight. And I found it interesting that you see that at restaurants like Alinea in Chicago with Grand Ackett's, and you also see it in the potato chip aisle. Nick, it's been a pleasure having you on Milk Street. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to rush out and get a whiskey and haggis bag of chips anytime soon, but I might try the, the biscuits and gravy. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was food writer Nick Hall. His article for Serious Eats is called The Alchemy of Novelty Potato Chip Flavors. Now it's time for my co-host Sarah Moult and I to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and, as you know, the star of Sarah's weeknight meals on public television. Chris, before we take a call, I have a question for you. How do you feel about eggnog? My opinion of eggnog is when I drink it, I love it but I never think about drinking it. Like there's one time, there's a party here in Boston every year and they have this great eggnog with a secret recipe, which is absolutely fabulous. And I have a large glass and, and then I don't think about it for 364 days to the next year. So That's I love it. That's how it should be. You know, seasonal is the best way to eat and drink. We should write a book about that, you yes. know. 365 things you don't think about until they happen. So I love eggnog, but I don't think about it. Okay. Let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Parker Hi. Um, from San Antonio, Texas. Beautiful town. How can we help you today? Um, I just uh, had a question about kind of maybe like the etymology of a couple of these words. Um, basically between dressing and stuffing. I, growing up, I have a, a great aunt 
you know, lives in New Orleans, and she would always make us an oyster dressing for, you know, our turkey and everything like that. It looks like just your typical turkey stuffing, just maybe a bit more moist and uh, very flavorful. I think it does have actual oysters in it. But my uh, one of my other aunts, she would always make her turkey stuffing. And to me as a kid, I always thought that, like, and eh, you know, it really wasn't much different, just probably the naming. But I ended up telling some of my coworkers about my great aunt's awesome oyster dressing, and they were like, what? What's oyster dressing? That sounds gross. Not, I guess they're not really understanding that it was more like a kind of like a stuffing type of thing, like, you know, the breading and all that. So I was wondering if it's like a regional word or if it's actually a different type of dish or, you know, really kind of like what the difference is. Well, there's two ways of looking at it. One is it is regional. I mean, the northerners refer to it as stuffing, southerners as dressing. And the other way to look at it is stuffing is what you actually put inside of the bird and dressing is maybe what you serve on the side. However, sometimes people call stuffing that they serve on the side stuffing particularly in the North, and I don't know what they do in the South. You know, I don't think they ever use that word stuffing. I think I need a drink. I'm (laughs) I'm confused already. (laughs) But definitely you're right. It does have oysters in there. Chris and I both know about it, right? We're New Englanders. But your aunt in New Orleans, so did she put it in the bird or on the side of the bird, and it was delicious, you say? Oh, yeah. I, I do remember, I think, the dressing being served on the side, whereas all the stuffing that my mom would make or my aunt would make, you know, would be made in the bird. You know, the bird doesn't hold much stuffing. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, People if you, you all, like yeah, stuffing. Sure. The, the problem is you have to make an additional amount in a pan in the oven to serve the family. Make people happy. Right. And so some of the stuffing goes in the bird, but some of the stuffing is dressing. <laughs> yes, right. So, yeah. I think that the short answer is it doesn't matter. No, stuffing really is dressing doesn't. and dressing is <laughs> stuffing. The existential question is, should you ever cook an oyster? Well, uh, according to Parker, it's delicious. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I liked it a lot more than the other one. Um, and I'm not sure exactly if it was just, you know, maybe oyster brine or if it did have a little bit of oyster. But to me, it just added a bit of this saltiness to it. Um, mm. Made it a lot more flavorful, I think. And it could also be that my other aunt's stuffing was just not as exciting. Um, Very possibly. <laughs> you need to get that recipe. I do, I do. Yeah, you must. But I, I, I know someone uh, who passed many years ago, but she gave me a fake version of her favorite custard pie recipe. Because she didn't want you to be able she to make it. She didn't want me it. to have it. No. And she, and she, she took was, it with her to the grave. She, she was thrilled that she went to the grave with I the secret. I know. How ornery so is that? I loved her, but she was ornery. Yes. Yeah. So, any rate. Parker, thank you for calling. Yes. All right, thanks, y'all. Okay. I yeah, take it. care. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, I'm Hank from uh, Newtown Square, Pennsylvania. Hi, Hank. How can we help you today? Well, I have a technical question here regarding baking and chemistry. Okay. Since I was a little boy, back in uh, 1966, my mother taught me how to make Jewish apple cake. I perfected it about 10 years ago by using a variety of apples, sweet to tart, and wondered one thing about the uh, constant ingredient. What does the third cup of orange juice do in the Jewish apple cake recipe? You're not saying there's three cups total of orange juice. You mean one of the cups of liquid? Third cup, a third. Third cup. Okay, got it. I was like, whoa, that's Well, the first two are for flavor. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you're already doing something real smart with varying the kinds of apples, both in terms of their flavor profile and also in terms of their acidity. But even, you know, given the variety of apples you have in there, apples need two things. They need sugar and also acid to point them up. So my guess would be that part of what the orange juice is doing, besides just adding its nice orange flavor, is adding that acid that you need. It would be like adding lemon juice. Yeah, like lemon juice. And why not add orange juice? I think that's a great idea. Okay. Chris? Well, the... (laughs) If you'd ask 10 food scientists, they'll give you 12 answers, but they'll probably tell you that acid in baking denatures proteins, which means you have a softer crumb to the final dish. I'm not sure it makes a particularly big difference. You have butter in this and flour, I assume? There's three cups of flour, one or two cups of uh, vegetable oil. I don't have it in front of me. Okay. I see the third cup of orange juice, baking powder. Right. As far as butter is concerned... I will uh, only use uh, salted butter right. for uh, buttering the pan. And do you think the cake is particularly tender, or is it just because of the flavor you're asking about the orange juice? Well, I, I like the way it tastes, and especially right. when I have the 
the variety of apples, so, you know, tart, semi-tart, right. semi-sweet, and sweet. And I always make it in a heavy iron, cast iron uh, bunt ton. My question ultimately is what's the chemistry of the, um, the orange juice? Yeah, I think Sarah's right. I think the orange juice is just an acid, which is good with apples. You're doing everything right, as Sarah said, by picking a variety of apples. I don't like any of the new varieties, the sweet ones. I don't think they They're hold bland. up. They're bland. They don't have any depth of flavor. They're not acidic. The answer to the chemistry is acid denatures proteins, which ostensibly would produce a more, more tender, tender crumb. crumb. However, with three cups of flour and lots of vegetable oil, the oil is going to coat the flour, and you're not going to have a tenderness problem. That's why carrot cake, for example, is it's so, so tender because it has oil in it. So yeah. I don't think the orange juice is doing anything for you in terms of texture. I think it's purely flavor. Flavor, yeah. That's my take. Yeah, it may, may only be one cup. I forget. Again, I don't have it in front of me. The oil's going to coat the gluten in the flour, and you're not going to yeah. get much gluten development, which means like carrot cake or any oil-based cake, you'll have a very tender cake. So it's just a flavor. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you for your input. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thanks, Hank. Thanks for calling. Yep. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a question, call us at 855-426-9843. One more time and slowly. 855-426-9843 or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Rich from Medford, Massachusetts. Hi, Rich. How can we help you today? Well, I am calling because I was hoping to get some advice about making Christmas cookies in advance. Best way is to preserve them, whether it's freezing dough or freezing the finished product. And also the other caveat is I'm working with a three-and-a-half-year-old uh, on these, so <laughs> having good stopping points would be helpful. You're sous chef. Well, you can freeze cookies either baked or raw. I would opt for raw myself. Uh, what you do, depending mm -hmm. on the batter, you know, if they're uh, the slice and bake, you leave them, you know, in a roll, and then you just leave them in the fridge for about an hour to soften slightly before you slice them and bake them. If they're more of a batter, you scoop them out into balls or whatever shape you want them and then freeze them on a sheet pan and then throw them into a bag or a container and just take out as many as you want and bake them. I preferred using the dough just because I think it's fresher, but you can also mm -hmm. bake them and then just make sure you wrap them really well so that they don't get freezer burn. And then the other thing is when you take them out of the freezer, don't leave them in, you know, all covered up because they'll give off liquid and that will make them soggy. Okay. Well, let's talk about the three-and-a-half-year-old, which is the most important part of this. <laughs> so is the objective to, I mean, what is he or she going to do? Cut out cookies and shapes? Is that what their role is here? Yeah, so he just is always interested in helping. He has a, a little tower that goes up to counter height. Right. So sometimes it's just watching, but he always likes at least some little job to do. We've in the past done some uh, no-bake cookies, kind right. of uh, chocolate ball types that, right. you know, I let him put the sprinkles on top. So even small acts like that he likes, but he just likes to be in the kitchen helping. But his intention span is, of course, limited. <laughs> Very short. Well, I, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old. I'll say two things. Be careful of those hot baking sheets. I like mm -hmm. to make pancakes with my son on Saturday morning, and uh, I let him flip them while I'm holding him. And he once got a little too close to the pan. You got a lot of baking sheets with cookies, so be careful. The other thing is I would freeze dough and then thaw it and then roll it out and let him cut the shapes out because that would be great. That would be sure. absolutely the most fun. In fact, I'm going to do that next weekend myself. So that's what I would do freeze a ball of cookie dough, roll it out after it's thawed, and then let him cut them out because then he's not dealing with hot pans. And it's more fun than just placing the sliced I think cookies you're right. on a sheet. I think you're right because yeah. then he could pick the cutters and then yeah. he has to press down and, yeah. No. And he'll do three of them and get bored. But, you know, you're, <laughs> you're good for like two minutes, right? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, that's what I would do. Yeah, and that's what he's going to do. So thank you for that great suggestion, Richard. Yeah, that's great. All right. Take care. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for calling. Bye, bye. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, it's Jamie Oliver, right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. 
Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Jay Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with chef and restaurateur, Jamie Oliver. Jamie, welcome to Most Street. It's good to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, the New York Times referred to you as a grafter, a term <laughs> that I had to look up, not common here in the States, which means someone who works hard. Uh, your dad, Trevor, famously used to say people die in bed, meaning you should spend less time in bed and more working. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, the did. famous story about the garden hose through the window to wake you up. Um You've been obviously very successful. Is hard work at the top of the pyramid of things you think that are important in life? I mean, I think it kind of expresses grit, determination. And I think in some respects, life in many ways is a bit of a numbers game, right? I mean, look at the hours in a working day. Like when I started out as an 18-year-old, it was typical to do a 100-hour week. 80 hours was very, very common. 
And then, you know, fast forward sort of 10, 15 years ago, EU regulations, 46 hour week. So you could absolutely say 46 hour week has proven that um, you can have a nice work life balance. It's much healthier for you and your family. But you could also say, yeah, and you can spend 10 years learning what you could have done in five. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So yeah, like definitely. grafting to me, I mean, I'm 45 now, so I'm, I'm trying to graft less. You know, I, in the last year, I've stopped getting to work at five in the morning and, and now I turn up at seven. That's two hours extra sleep. It's amazing. Like I'd forgotten how good sleep was. <laughs> you know, life is a bit of a numbers game, right? So tell me about the restaurant business. You know, I know a lot of people, creative people, musicians, architects, chefs, they get into a business because they love the creative part. And then they realize actually running a business becomes paramount. Uh, mm. What do you think makes a successful restaurateur besides the fact you know how to cook and you're creative in the kitchen? Does the business part of it take over at some point? Yeah, I think it, I think it can. And I think it does. And I think there's a few ways you can cut the cake. The question is, what do you want? And what do you want to express? If it's one restaurant, which is your sole focus that is going to be an institution. And then you've got a pretty good chance of A, making it special, B, making it work, even if you're pretty bad at stuff, like you can finesse and finesse and just keep going. Um, but you might want to have multiple restaurants. That might be because you want to share your vision or your love or your philosophy. It might be because you want to make more money. It might be both. Then that's much harder. But there's not much difference between five restaurants and 100, to be honest because it then becomes about leadership and culture in a different way. So, you know, I feel like I've had the best and I feel like I've had the worst of it because I lost all my restaurants. I mean, it lit the restaurant business, small or big, is always metaphorically like a bucket with holes. <laughs> there ain't no one in this world working with a, with a sealed bucket. Like, everyone's got a hole or two or three. So it's always about minimising the holes. I mean, if you don't care about food, I'm sure you can make a fortune. But... All I can see at the moment is everyone that cares is getting not just beaten up, but like kicked in the head and like they're having such a tough time. So I, I think as a person that was born into the food industry, I feel like in a quite a visceral way that the good guys are unfairly being treated the same as the ones that couldn't give a uh, I'm going to change topics. I please do. Just watch. Just watched your very old but wonderful uh, music video with your band Scarlet Division, the, the song Sundial. You are really a good drummer. <laughs> uh, do, do you still do it, or maybe during COVID you've been holed up in your basement whacking away at the drums? Yeah, no. F funny enough, I I did it from 11 to 23, and it pretty much kept me out of trouble. But I started back up in lockdown. And then I started experimenting with recording and then started actually writing some music. And since January, I've written about 13 tracks and I've been using them on the, on the TV shows and they're decent, you know. And I, and, and I guess most importantly for me, it's been like my version of mental health. It's been my way to switch off. It's used a different part of my brain. Uh, it kind of made me feel nostalgic, a bit, bit more like a teenager than a 45-year-old with five kids. Um, so I'm not sure if you call that a midlife crisis or, or, um, or, or whatever, but I think, you know, it's, it's good to try and use different parts of your brain, I think. We're going to actually talk about food, uh, your new book, Seven Ways, uh, Seven Ways to Cook a Bunch of Sort of Core Ingredients. So here's what's interesting to me. You have vindaloo or poke from Hawaii or butter chicken from Mumbai, but you really have one foot firmly planted in what I would call pub food or classic English food, sausage and mash, beef and yeah. hot pot, cullen skink, I don't even know what that was, you know, smoked haddock, toad in the <laughs> hole, toasties. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting the way you've made those things, you know, strange bedfellows kind of work side by side. It seems to work. How do you put those things together? How can I say? Like every book I write has a, a very clear objective and emotion and – I kind of split them into two categories. I either write a book for the audience or I write a book for myself. I think this book is definitely written for the audience. And I've approached this book in a very different way than any book I've ever written in 20 years. 
So this was the first book that I've ever written solely based on data of what most people buy most weeks in their supermarket shop. So my theory was like, if I can write creative recipes around stuff I know you've probably bought already or probably got in your fridge right now, then I might have a good chance of inspiring you to cook it. And then basically the 18 chapters in this book are some of those fundamental, most common things. And, and then I start writing these recipes to your point that surf around the world. So yeah, I'm, I'm not too proud to not enjoy a toasty. A good cheese toasty is a thing of joy and you can throw a few noodle dishes in there and pasta dishes, but also, you know, toad in the hole always makes my foreign friends giggle like, what the hell is that? You know, <laughs> they just thank you for it not being spotted dick, you know? And it's like, uh, but I think, you know, like the global food audience, they're pretty well versed these days. They've seen quite a lot. They've probably tasted quite a lot. They certainly know a lot more than the average person 20 years ago when I kicked off as the naked chef. So just putting, I, I've always said people ask me about our recipes, you know, when are we going to put nutrition information? I said, the day I die they can do yeah. it. Um, do, do you, how do you feel about that? I, I feel like if you're cooking at home, do you really need to know? I mean, you know what went into it, right? Look, look, I, I get you, and I, and I feel what you're saying. Um, about six years ago, I spent two years traveling around the world to places where people live the longest. It was a real labor of love for me and, and, a, and a pleasure to go to those places and look at those different communities. And about seven years ago, I went back to, I mean, having done really badly at school, I went back to university and trained as a nutritionist, which I have to say was the most incredible, empowering thing as a, as a chef, learning to be a nutritionist is incredibly empowering because if you're just a regular member of the public training to be a nutritionist and you can't cook, that's tough. But if you're a chef training to be a nutritionist, and learning about what we do know about nutrition and what it can offer and how you can tell bullshitters and how you can look at validity of data and, and, and look at who's lying and who typically lies and who's always lying. Like these are really powerful things to learn. And then you start to learn that good nutrition is about what you can have, not what you can't have. So therefore, I will definitely put nutrition up there for the people that do care and the people that are using some of those signals to help them go a positive direction with their weekly shop and their weekly cooking. Also, I'm, I'm like Mr. Mainstream. You know, the days of being cutting edge, cool, niche. Like, I wish I was trendy and I wish I was like edgy and I wish I was doing like little crazy Netflix specials. But I am absolutely, like, I'm Mr. Mainstream. You know, like part of nutrition can be about saying, yeah, look, it's amazing. But in that one side dish, you've had a week's worth of saturated fat. And if you want to tell everyone how to die young, then crack on. If, if you were to say, what's the most dangerous thing in public health in the next 50 years? I would say definitely one of them is billions of rubbish recipes that are free, that are unhealthy and don't work. A big slice of cake is one of the most honest things in the food industry right now. Like a big slice of cake has never lied to you. It's never pretended to be something it's not. Like, you know, if you eat three slices of cake, you know that ain't going to sit well. But at the same time, if I take you down like your typical supermarket, I can go, dude, look at these pasta sauces. Like, they're all flashing red. Like, there's no need for them to have all that sugar in a simple sauce. Look at this um, breakfast cereal aisle. Like, it's not the cereal aisle. It's the cake aisle. <laughs> it's cake <laughs> pretending to be cereals. You've... Uh... You give back a lot, and you're famous for that. The 15 restaurant, Jamie's School Dinners, the 2030 Project. Was that something that was always part of what you wanted to do with your life? Uh, Not really. I mean, I didn't really grow up doing anything particularly nice for anyone. I didn't grow up being particularly <laughs> philanthropic or charitable. But The Naked Chef was such a culinary bomb. You know, it kind of changed everything. It looked different, it sounded different, it felt different. It went around the world quicker than you can imagine. And I was only a baby, really. Like I was just trying to work it all out. I was, I was super enthusiastic. I had been cooking quite a long time, even at that stage. But I was kind of in shock. And then with the job of being in the public eye and making programs and documentaries, of, of course, like that's not normal. So I get to meet 
amazing people and farmers and producers and scientists and when you get to see lots of stuff and whether it's inspiring or just the truth like when you see injustice and things that are unfair I mean I think the public expect me that they want me to have a voice for them and they tell me that <laughs> quite clearly but I mean some of the best things I've ever done I've hated like school dinners was 18 months of hell and they didn't want me there the kids didn't want me there even the parents didn't want me there Um, half the head teachers didn't want me there and then the minute it was broadcast the concept of change and making change across a school or 56 schools in that particular experiment it wasn't until the moment the first newspaper reviewed the show and said it was important stories like all of a sudden as soon as it was printed in the paper Everyone was like, oh, yeah, it's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yes, 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 yes. So, like, all of those campaigns that I've done and giving back, as you said, it's really bumpy. But, you know, there's a long list of stuff to be done. Jamie, uh, thanks so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you on Milk Street. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. That was Jamie Oliver. His latest cookbook is Seven Ways, Easy Ideas for Every Day of the Week. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, chocolate hazelnut cream cake. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. Okay, time for a tirade. Uh Uh-oh. Frostings. You know, making cakes, I love making cakes, but the frosting is always a problem, right? Because it's a whipped cream frosting. Eh, it doesn't last that long. Egg white frostings don't last that long. I don't really like buttercream frostings per se. What? There's too much butter. Sorry. So that's where these things fall down. The cake's great, but the frosting, you know, eh, the frosting's not great. I recently interviewed a guy called Dominique Ancel. He wrote a book called Everyone Can Bake. And he came up with this notion of filling slash frostings where you use a little gelatin to set up the frosting, which is really a game changer for me because it gives you great texture and it sticks around for a while. That was the notion of rethinking the frosting and the filling. Well, this is the perfect idea for you because it's sort of mix and match. That's kind of his concept is, you know, learn a few cakes, learn a few fillings, learn a few frostings, and then you can mix and match and you've got this huge repertoire of possible cakes to make. The one that we really liked was a particular filling he actually uses to make his eclairs, the filling for his eclairs. It's a white chocolate ganache. So you make a ganache by melting white chocolate with some heavy cream. In his version, he adds a little bit of honey and mascarpone cheese, which I think is really nice here because white chocolate has a tendency to be very sweet. So it balances that really nicely. You refrigerate that, then you whip it up. And some people use that as a frosting, but it's really light and kind of gets destroyed in between two layers. So he adds a little bit of gelatin to it. Now, this is not going to make it gelatinous. It just adds a little bit of structure, so it holds up really nicely in between two layers of cake. And what's the cake? Is this a chocolate cake or a hazelnut cake? So in this case, it's a chocolate cake. Really simple, just cocoa, a little bit of buttermilk. When it comes out of the oven, we cut the cake into two layers and we brush the cake with a simple syrup, which has a little bit of espresso powder in it. Coffee and espresso really bring out the flavor of chocolate. This simple syrup makes the cake really nice and moist and keeps the exterior crumb from drying out. So we have the cake, we have the filling. Is the frosting a version of the filling or is something totally different? This is my favorite kind of cake making where you take one thing and you make it two things. So you take that white chocolate ganache, half of it becomes the frosting on top of the cake, and to the other half we add some Nutella. So that becomes Mm. the chocolate hazelnut filling for the cake. So you've got a cake layer, that chocolate hazelnut filling, another cake layer, and then that white chocolate ganache on the top. We sprinkle the top with some chopped hazelnuts. It's not only delicious, but it's a beautiful cake on a table. Because it's exposed, you can see those layers. It's just a real showstopper. So you don't have to mess around trying to get the sides of the cake frosted, which is the one thing that takes an hour and a half. My favorite kind of frosting. You end up eating half the frosting by the time you're doing it? Yes. 
So we need to thank Dominique Ansel, a whole new way to think about fillings and frostings. The mascarpone's really nice, the ganache, but then adding the gelatin so it holds yeah. its texture and not frosting the side of the cake, which also makes life so much easier. So much. So chocolate hazelnut cream cake. Oh, this is so good. <laughs> thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can find this recipe and all our recipes at 177milkstreet.com. This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman and how s'mores are overrated and what to do about it. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah and I will answer a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Les from Cape Cod. How can we help you today? Well, I hope you can explain a mystery about a missing ingredient. Starting back in March, things began to disappear from supermarket shelves. One of the things that I was unable to buy in our local markets was chicken livers. The problem has been solved in the last week or 10 days when they suddenly are back in our two local supermarket chains. But for the better part of, I don't know, seven or eight months, they weren't to be found anywhere. Now, it seems to me that many, many chickens were slaughtered during this time period. I'm wondering where the livers went. <laughs> well, I think what happened, a couple of things. First of all, there was probably more of a demand. Perhaps it was that, that it just seemed like, oh, this is something that I can afford. The other thing is, remember, a lot of food processing plants, meat processing plants, had surges of the coronavirus and probably had to cut back on production. So perhaps we're not slaughtering as many chickens. I don't know. Chris, you got any theories? Um, I mean, I remember March and April it was hard to get chickens and there was, you know, one per customer and you couldn't buy three in the supermarket or wherever you went. But since April or May, there's been no problem getting chickens. No, the chickens came back quite quickly. The chickens came back after 60 days or so, 
but the livers didn't. So it's not a chicken supply problem. It's like where the livers go. Look, if you're not used to cooking chicken liver, I don't think you're going to start cooking them because of financial reasons. So I, I think you make a good point. The chickens came back, but without their livers, they went somewhere else. I don't know the answer to that. I think it's a great question. I don't know whether the bean counters and the supermarket chains decide that they wanted to devote the shelf space to something that had more oh, profit in it. That is there you very go. likely. Yeah, no, that's I think you much just came up with answer. the best answer. I mean, that's right. They have it, So paper towels took the place of the chicken liver slot. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. Or toilet, or toilet paper, paper. Or yeah. some cheap cut of meat that people were making pot roast out of. Yeah, I think that's... You know what? I think that's exactly right. Well, you might want to go back to your supermarket, and there must be somebody in charge of the meat department, and ask them. I asked several people. And they had no idea? No, they were as mystified as I was. You know what? We're going to go figure this out. I'm going to go make some phone calls, because this is really interesting. I don't know why I find this fascinating. Well, you're going to have to put it into the magazine so we all can find out. I think it's a cover story right there. Yes, there you go. Okay. excellent question, we need to get the answer. Okay. Thanks. While you're at it, check out what's happened to the oven cleaner. Oh. Why? What's happened to the oven cleaner? It's gone. It disappeared. We know why, because everyone's at home and they're redoing their kitchens. They're keeping their kitchens clean. That I get. Maybe they've been roasting chicken livers and they made a mess. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Les, thanks so much. Great question. Yes. Absolutely. Take care. Okay. Thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. Give us a call anytime. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is John from Colebrook, Connecticut. Hi, John. How can we help you today? I like lean proteins. So turkey certainly fits that bill. But to me, it's one of the blandest things you could possibly cook. But when I look up turkey recipes, it just seems to be... The same boring thing. Any idea how I can spice up turkey a little bit? One thing to do is to spatchcock it, take out the backbone and flatten it, sit on it, and then do some interesting spices under the skin, and then you can grill it, and that's pretty yummy. Hands down, the best turkey I ever had was deep fried. My new favorite recipe from the magazine is the chicken vandaloo. Can you do that kind of stuff with turkey? Oh, of course you can. Turkey would braise beautifully. Chris is like dying to talk now because he never roasts a whole turkey. Chris, go. <laughs> Look, turkey is bland no matter what you do. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can use the turkey meat and do buttered chicken, for example, right, from Mumbai or chicken vindaloo or something like that. Mm-hmm. But we were talking about 12 to 20 pounds of bird here. I would braise it and then I would do a sauce or finish it somehow in a sauce. Yeah, I got it. Sometimes I'll buy the hotel, what they call it, the hotel cut of the turkey, which is, I guess, just the breasts on both sides and cuts the, the legs and stuff off. And then I'll just roast it, and it's like, it doesn't have any flavor. But I love chicken. Such a similar bird. Let me make a suggestion. I talked to a guy in Minneapolis, Mung. Every dish they think of has four parts. It has a hot sauce. It has vegetable. It has something unctuous and fatty. And it has rice. The rice is there to be sort of the foundation of the dish. If you think of turkey as the bland <laughs> foundation of the dish, and then you have something spicy, you have something unctuous, you have other things with it or on it, it's not about changing the turkey. It's about what you put with the turkey. I'm going to throw in one last thing. I found a recipe in an old Italian cookbook. I adapted it and used it with a whole chicken. Separate the skin from the meat, and then I made a mixture of grated zucchini that you salt and squeeze and saute with some onions, and then you combine it with some ricotta cheese and Parmesan cheese and herbs and lots of garlic, and you stuff it under the skin. You roast the chicken partially covered for a fair amount of time and then uncover it to brown in the end. And that stuffing really makes the skin brown and also acts as an insulation between the skin and the white meat, since you talked about just Mm -hmm. cooking turkey breast. It is so delicious. Sounds wonderful. Other thing you can do is use za'atar. I bought some, but I haven't used it yet. Okay, there you go. Salt and za'atar and just rub it Mm -hmm. on, on the spatchcock bird and roast it at like 375 or 325, whatever you want. And you get this wonderful flavor on the outside. It looks great as well. 
you can get the beautiful skin and you can get a great flavor on the skin. So that's just a two-second solution. All right. Well, I'll give some of those things a try. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful yep. holiday and enjoy the show so much. Thanks a lot. Thanks for calling. Thank you, John. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Audrey Kovacs from Beverly Hills, California. And my tip is how to make your French onion soup just a little bit better. I take half the onions and I julienne them, and the other half of the onions I dice. When I do this, the diced onions melt and create great body in the soup, and the juliennes add the terrific texture, and they both add flavor. So there's my tip. I hope you enjoy it. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's regular contributor Dan Pashman. Dan, how are you? I'm doing okay, Chris. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time outdoors. I think like a lot of folks, you know, trying to stay safe, take the right precautions. And so my family and I have been spending a lot of time in our backyard and our neighbor's backyard around fire pits. And I think it's having an effect on the way people are eating. <laughs> You're going back to some primitive form of cooking over fire <laughs> well, I, or hamburgers, which is both. A- I mean, I mean, uh, we had our first ever weenie roast, but I also, you know, anecdotally, I'd like to say that there's been a 37 percent increase in s'mores consumption this winter. Oh yeah, that's you know, in our family too, we, we spend um, Saturday nights. We do spend time around a, a fire, and there are lots of s'mores. Of course, in my case, with our kids. It doesn't get past the marshmallow. <laughs> I, I don't know what you call a s'mores without the chocolate and the graham cracker, but that's what we so, get. So, Chris, walk me through your s'mores technique. Well, as I said, the technique is to is to buy a bag of marshmallows and get a large stick. <laughs> but there is a technique to the marshmallow. Everyone thinks you should put it near a flame, which, of course, is absolutely incorrect. You, you need to get embers. It's like any kind of roasting over a fire. Oh, see, this is, well, this is where, where our divergent personalities are really clear, Chris, because I, I, I'll bet you're the kind of person who, like, sits patiently, holds yes. the marshmallow yes. many inches from the flame, uh-huh. and then, like, 45 yes. minutes later, you have, like, you, know, yeah. you have a sous vide marshmallow. No, it has to be, yes. <laughs> no, the, the, absolutely. I mean, you have the different surfaces. They have to be very dark brown. They have to bubble but not turn black. Oh, my God. It's almost to the point where the outer casing almost can come off in a piece, right? I mean, that that's the ultimate example. It of, is, but do you want to know the best way to get the outer casing to come off in a piece? Just burn it to Exactly. Death, right? Light the whole thing on fire. <laughs> like, <laughs> of course. I can get that result in, in 18 seconds. <laughs> the passion method. I, I like a burnt marshmallow. I have no patience for the slow roasting technique. But I have to say, Chris, that I believe that s'mores are not that great. I think that the romance of the campfire and the happy memories we may connect to s'mores have blinded us to reality. Oh, you've just gone over the edge. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, chocolate graham crackers and half-burned marshmallows. It's a lovely thing. The biggest problem with s'mores is the graham crackers. Graham crackers are a terrible sandwich base. They are brittle. So you bite into them and they shatter. Uh, this, I see. We're going back to what is a sandwich, right? So now you're focused on whether graham crackers actually work as a sandwich medium, which is, you have a good point. Thank actually. you. I mean, graham crackers are also, I mean, like I love a graham cracker pie crust when you add butter and sugar, but a plain yeah. old graham cracker is just... You know, they're bland by design. They were invented by the Reverend Sylvester Graham to suppress sexual urges. Well, he was... And I think that they work <laughs> on that front. <laughs> so I'd like to share with you, Chris, some techniques that I've come up with that I think will improve the s'more. Okay. The first one I call the inverted s'more. This is one graham cracker in the center, roasted marshmallow on either side, pieces of chocolate on top and bottom. What this does is it gets you the crunch of the graham cracker, but the gooiness of the marshmallow holds it together when it shatters. It also means that the chocolate and marshmallow land on your tongue, which accentuates those flavors. It puts the graham cracker in the back seat as a role player where it belongs. Well, this is called a cold weather s'mores because in July, the chocolate as being right, the thing that's right. be on your finger is not ideal. No, this right? is a we're outside in the cold weather, yes. All right, well, uh, you know. Yes. The other one I got is called a mini s'mores pie. You've seen the mini graham cracker pie crusts. 
Mm-hmm. You take those, put one or two roast marshmallow in there. Maybe put the chocolate in first and hold the graham cracker pie crust over the fire so the chocolate melts down a bit, softens. Then you put your roasted marshmallow on top, mm. and now you have a mini s'mores pie. Now, do these little pie crusts come in little tins? Yeah, you can buy. I mean, you can buy them in the supermarket, or if you wanted to, like, go out and get a mini pie crust mold, you could do them artisanally. I'm sure. No, no, no. I'm not going to do it. No. <laughs> is, is the mad scientist finished with s'mores? No, I'm not. I have one more s'mores innovation for you. Get rid of the graham cracker entirely. Replace it with, let's say, like a chewy chocolate chip cookie that won't shatter. Replace the chocolate with peanut butter cups. Add a strip of bacon. There are a million things that you can do around the campfire to take your s'mores experience to a new level of deliciousness. Yeah, you lost me with that. Well, Dan Pashman, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for reinventing s'mores. Two out of the three are home runs. Right. And I'll, uh, I'll leave you to the chocolate chip cookie and the bacon, but uh, each to his own. Thank you, Dan. I'll take it, Chris. Stay warm. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful podcast. You know, Dan and I agree on almost everything, including whether a hot dog is actually a sandwich, but we do disagree about s'mores. Dan says they are a deeply flawed culinary concept, and I respond by saying that s'mores is, well, not a recipe, it's an event. All parents know that s'mores are about the campfire, hunting for roasting sticks in the dark, and sticky fingers gently pulling apart a blackened and bubbly hot marshmallow. In other words, it's like everything else in life. It's how you get there that really matters. If you tune in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Cookish. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, and on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Executive producer, Tanya Ott. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange.